Hey everybody, Josh Sheridan here with the Barely Legal Podcast. On today's show, I have a very special guest. I have been, uh, since the creation of this show, uh, been itching to have somebody on who had uh, served in the military, specifically in some capacity with special forces. Uh, It's always held a... A uh, curious space in my mind as to what makes them tick, how they're able to do what they do. And uh, luckily, through some mutual friends, I was able to be put in contact with John Mulberry, Mulberry who's here today. Uh, he is retired Army. Retired Army. Retired yes. Army, former Special Forces, Green Beret, a Ranger Certified, Ranger School, all that. I, I think I'm saying that correctly. Yeah. All right. So uh, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me, Josh. I, really, I appreciate it. I really appreciate it. Uh, I, I'm sure you your, your days are kept pretty full. I guess you originally were supposed to be gone this week, but, but your schedule changed or something like yeah, that? Yeah, we had some last minute changes that freed up some time, so it worked out well. Okay. So uh, kind of jumping right in, uh, you were in the military for 20 plus years. Is that correct? Yeah. I retired after 30 years in the army. Wow. So when did you go in? I, uh, let's see, I was commissioned in 1986. Wow. 1986. Now were you, uh, was your family a military family? Not at all. Um, my, uh, my mom was a remedial reading teacher and my dad was a professional scouter with the Boy Scouts of America. Um, and, uh, I'm trying to think there's really nobody close in my family that was in the military, but it was just something that always really fascinated me. Now, were you an only child or did you have siblings? I have uh, one older brother, just a year older than me. And how's your relationship with him, if you care to comment? It's a great relationship. There was no sibling rivalry there or anything, as you can imagine, growing up. But uh, um, it was uh, it, it was great. And did I understand that you're uh, you're from New York originally? I am. I'm from a uh, very small dairy farm in town named Skenevis. It's right near Cooperstown. Uh, okay. If you're familiar with Albany, you know where that is. It's uh, west sure. of Albany a bit. But uh, so so uh, we were just talking off air. My father is from Albany, New York. His last name is Sheridan, and I've always heard in the family that I'm related to General Philip Sheridan, which uh, in doing some research on you, I saw that you had posted a, a biography about him. And, uh, you know, as I was telling you, I'm always ashamed how little I know about the connection there. But luckily, well, I, again, I'm always fearful of talking, but, you know, if I'm taking a, a, a side that, that would be uh, controversial. But luckily, he fought for the side that I'm proud in, uh, <laughs> in, uh, <laughs> in laying claim to. You Absolutely. Know? So uh, in any event, so Albany, how long were you there? Were you there uh, most of your youth or did you? Yeah, I was born and raised there. There. Were you an active kid into sports and that sort of thing? I uh, I tried to be maybe not as active as some folks. Um, I played soccer in high school. I was, I'm from a real small town. So really the only sports we had was, uh, let's see, soccer in the fall, basketball in the winter and baseball in the spring. Right. And of course, you can see my height. I'm not much of a basketball player, but uh, I, I, I did try to play soccer. You look like you're probably really fast, though. <laughs> I don't know, but not anymore. Well, maybe, back in the day. back in the day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, and your older brother, what was he like? Um, he was a lot more athletic. He played sports, played him a whole lot better than I did. Now, uh, was there hunting in the family? Were you guys introduced to firearms at a young age? Absolutely was. Yeah, that was a big part of our childhood and growing up. And I think, frankly, that's part of what steered me towards the Army. Well, so this kind of gets me. uh, I don't want to jump too far ahead because there's probably other interesting parts of your life before you went in the military I'd like to talk about. But one of the big things for me is... What steers somebody into the military? And I know it's not one answer for everybody. It's, you know, it's different things for different people, but more specifically is the special forces aspect of it because. As I mentioned before, uh, my training with Muay Thai and Jiu Jitsu and just different, you know, even as a family law attorney, I've had cases where I've represented people in the special forces or represented spouses against people in the special forces. And they always occupy this unique space for me is just very interesting people. And, and, and one of the reasons they're so interesting to me is they're so different from me because I just I could just automatically pick up that I'm on the other end of the spectrum mentally, physically, you know, whatever you want to call psychologically. So, you know, that thing that's alien to you holds a lot of interest to you. So, uh, you know, this is kind of where I wanted to direct the conversation. So uh, as far as your uh, childhood hunting introduction to firearms, you said that steered you into your interest in the military. Can you expound on that? Yeah. um, Like I say, um, being in upstate New York and 
to make clear, as, as you know, again, being familiar with Albany, uh, upstate New York has nothing to do with the, with New York City. And that's what everybody automatically equates New York, New York with. But there's there's rednecks up there. There's plenty of them. But uh, um, like I said, I grew up uh, hunting and fishing and uh, things like that, spending time in the outdoors. And that's what uh, that's part of what steered me towards the uh, towards the military. And again, with my uh, uh, my dad, what he was doing is uh, working as a professional for the Boy Scouts of America. I had kind of a uh, uh, not to sound too corny, but, you know, kind of a, a spirit of service kind of uh, ex- that I was exposed to from an early age. Um, so that uh, that always kind of fascinated me. And I think the other thing was um, was once again, being from that small town in upstate New York, it represented something different, something a little bit more exciting and frankly, a way to get out of skinny New York. So that's why I pursued it. So were you in New York up until you went in? I, I was. Yeah, I graduated from high school. I went uh, straight from there into uh, to West Point, uh, spent four years in West Point. Oh, wow. And then, uh, I had no idea. Carried on in the army. Yeah. How was West Point? It's a uh, it's a great place to be from, but it, uh, it's it's uh, kind of painful while you're there, I guess, is the best way to describe it. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, how, how did that form you as a as a person? Do you think that molded you into the person you are today what, by, by good or bad as far as. Uh, your views of the world and, and, you know, world affairs and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think that molded me quite a lot. It uh, showed me that there was a whole lot more out there than the small town that I was from. Um, it kind of humbled me in terms of, uh, you know, it's kind it's very easy to be kind of a big fish in a small pond. Well, suddenly I was uh, thrown into a, a big pond with a whole lot bigger fish. So I realized, you know, that I wasn't, uh, um, you know, the, the, the smartest guy in a room by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so, you know, it, uh, it, it kind of put things into perspective that way. But at the same time, it showed me that, you know, a lot of what that small town did for me provided me with some advantages that uh, uh, some of my peers there didn't have. Like what? Um, I, I mean, the uh, the attention, the personal attention that we got from our teachers in our school was, was just incredible. The fact that, you know, I literally knew everybody in my high school class, um, I, I think was very helpful because, you know, we, we, we had connections that I, I don't think you can do it in, in a bigger place. Now, did your father teach you respect for firearms and how to use them, clean them, he, you say, with them. He absolutely did. Yeah. And it was uh, drilled into us. I, I was frankly fascinated with him for, uh, you know, for as long as I can remember. Um, but I was, uh, you know, I'm very grateful now for the way my father taught us the respect for uh, for firearms and for their use. This is kind of a, a, a broad sweeping question. So answer it however you want. But do you feel that there, uh, the respect for firearms has uh, is taught today like it was back then or has become more specialized just for those seeking out that education versus Fathers teaching sons, brothers teaching sons, that sort of thing. Yeah, in my opinion, I, I don't think it's there anymore, and I think it's because it's become such a divisive issue in the in the country. You know, you're either on team pro firearms or team against firearms. Uh, so I think a lot of that, uh, you know, what we had in the past was was lost. Right. So uh, how does it work with West Point? Uh, is, is it like a normal school in that can you major in something there or are you pretty much th- the same path that everybody's on? When I was there and like I say, I graduated in 86 and I think it's changed. But when I was there, uh, they didn't offer technical majors. They offered areas of concentration, which for all intents and purposes are the same as a major. Uh, but they didn't have, uh, uh, you, know, you know, literally majors. I think that's changed since then. Uh, now, are you active military upon graduating or are are you active military upon entering the school? How does that work? It's uh, you're, you're considered active duty military as soon as you enter uh, enter the the, the school um, at, at the rank of a cadet, um, and then you're commissioned as an officer as a second lieutenant when you uh, when you graduate. It's kind of an in between. Um, you know, you, you're technically active duty, but uh, it's not quite the same as being a commissioned officer. And so, as soon as you graduate, do they tell you where you're going, or how do you have to do you have to bid on it, or how does that work? Yeah, it's an interesting process. It's based on um, it actually starts. Starts the year before you graduate, or your, you, you know your senior year, your first year is what they call it there. Uh, but it starts with uh, uh, you know the first thing is the needs of the army, where they need people to go, and then that's combined with uh, your rank in the class. Literally, every cadet is ranked from one to whatever the number is, um, and so you get you know your preference based is that on that academically and physically, or like how do they? What's the metrics by which they again? Gave it's you? very interesting. It's a combination of, uh, or again, speaking thirty years ago when I was sure. there, it's a combination of academics of physical fitness grades and uh, leadership grades, you know, basically how well you're doing in terms of uh, uh, not, not getting demerits for doing something wrong, sure. things like that. And so uh, where, did, where, did, where were you directed? Um, I, I, I chose the infantry. Okay. And I was, uh, I was pretty happy about that. It was my first choice. 
Okay. Uh, my first duty assignment was up at uh, Fort Lewis, Washington. Did you get basic before your first duty assignment or do they do that while you're in school or how does that work? They, uh, oh, what happens is upon graduation, I went to um, the infantry officer's basic course. Okay. Um, and I, then after that, I went to ranger school. Okay. And uh, that's, uh, yeah, that's, you know, we were talking before about the difference between that. It's, it's kind of confusing. Ranger school is about 55, 56 days. It's a very tough school. It focuses on uh, really small unit tactics. Tactics, but it's it's real focus is on leadership because it's it's tough. It's a gut check in a bunch of different ways. Um, just to, to go down a different rabbit hole, that's absolutely different from the Ranger Regiment. Okay. The Ranger Regiment is an Army Special Operations formation um, that um, ha- has some very specific missions. So when you know when some, you ask somebody the, uh, the question, are they a Ranger or not? You got to dig a little bit deeper to see because if I talked to somebody in a Ranger Regiment and said, yeah, I went, they're going to call you on it. Yeah, exactly. Gonna, yeah, yeah, I'm a Cretan, so I don't know what yeah. I'm talking about. So please correct. Yeah, absolutely. If I'm, if I'm off base at all. So, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, has always piqued my curiosity is uh, as an only child growing up in the 80s, I got to watch tons of movies. And in that time, uh, a lot of the movies, the the hero of the story was always spe- ex-special force. You know, there was Chuck Norris or yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger or whatever. And in these movies, there are these elite hand hat hand to hand combats know how to use all the weapons just a superhero effectively uh and uh a friend of mine had a a, a buddy who was in the seals and so i was asking him directly and through his friend about him and they kind of goofed on him and were saying he just won't, can't be told no or he can't be told that he can't do something that's that's all that's the leg up that he's got in this world if you tell him he can't swim 20 miles he's going to do it just to prove you wrong and so i started to see that more so than the physical essence of it is a psychological or a mental essence of it do you see what i'm getting at or understand what i'm asking i i absolutely see what you're getting at in uh, in fact you know when i saw what you uh, what you wanted to talk about today that's really one of the things that that, that struck me is, you know you asked about what kind of folks are uh, are are interested in uh, special operations forces and special forces and what folks kind of folks are successful and i would say the folks that are interested in it that drives it for uh, that are driven towards it are folks who are looking Looking for that challenge, you know, are are, are seriously seriously looking for that challenge. Um, I think that's the uh, that that's the kind of folks that are driven to it. In terms of who are successful, I think it's the the folks who are um, who are resilient, you know, and and just as you say, who, who who don't necessarily take no to an answer when they're when they're trying to achieve that challenge. But have you ever spent much time on the uh, genesis psychologically of how you become that person, or you know, what is it in your life that made you up for a challenge or what it what is it in your life that made you resilient uh before i let you answer that i spend an hour every week in therapy figuring out why i'm not up for a challenge why i'm not resilient and uh so much of it has to do with my environment as a child uh the type of uh household that i was brought up in uh i think some of it might be being an only child uh you know there's a, a, a number of different things there but I, I, you know, this, this is maybe I could ask a better question, but apart aside from what you need, how did how did you get that? Where did that come from? You know, was it the scouts? Was it your father? Was it your brother? Was it a aggregate of those and some other things? I, I think to a certain extent, it, it probably was an aggregate of those kinds of things. I mean, I'll, I'll also let you know, I'm, I, I suffer from serious imposter syndrome. I feel honestly like I've been forced gumping my way through life up to now. And, you know, it's, uh, it, it's been just a series of uh, fortunate coincidences, uh, you know, that, 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 that I've been able to have the, uh, um, the, the, the great experiences that I have in, in, in the military and in, and in special forces. But I think that's part of it. I mean, I, I, I can remember some instances where, um, you know, I was posed with a challenge and, you know, my, um, my response in my head was, look, can I, can I go X-rated here or, or R-rated at least? You know, Triple when somebody X. told me I couldn't do something, I can literally remember saying, well, fuck you. Yeah. We're going to do it anyway. I mean, a, a classic example is uh, I told you I started out in the infantry. Um, and that was in the uh, uh, the late 80s, early 90s, where if you recall, we were downsizing the military to a serious, uh, you know, by, by a lot of folks, a lot of formations. I was at uh, Fort Ord at California at the time, and they were uh, disbanding the unit that I was in. They were, they were telling us to pack up, you know, don't, don't need you anymore. Um, so our branch manager, the guy that was in charge of assignments for all of us young infantry captains, 
supposedly was going to make sure that we were all taken care of. In other words, we weren't lost in the shuffle with these reassignments. Um, I was in company command at the time, which is a big deal for a captain. It's a key and developmental position that makes sure that you're, uh, you know, set up for success for your, uh, for your next job. So it had a big impact on my career. Well, this uh, branch manager came down, talked to us and uh, uh, basically said, yeah, 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 we'll send you where we send you. And I said, well, you know, I was, I was told that, you know, they need captains here. And he's like, yeah, that's great, but we'll send you where we send you. And he goes, well, what do you think you're going to do? And I said, well, you know, I've been considering special forces. So I'll, uh, I'll, I guess I'll put my packet in for that. And he just kind of looked at me and he chuckled. He said, yeah, well, good luck with that. And at that moment, you know, that's what I said, you know, what, you know, fuck you, pal. Yeah. And of course that was a serious motivator as I was going through the assessment and selection process for special forces. No one, you know, having that in the back of my mind, and frankly, knowing that I wouldn't have any home in the infantry if I didn't make it through and had to go back. So, right. I, I mean, that's an example, I guess. Well, that's a great example. And so, so kind of one of the things that I've found, and again, I'm sorry, I'm going to make this as much about me as you, but uh, that's the main reason I want to talk yeah, to you yeah. is to help me learn more about, you know, myself too. Um, you know, one of the things that I've uh, learned as I've gotten older is I have a problem uh, with creating boundaries of thought. So staying task focused, you know, I have a, I have the ability to be worrying about my mortgage, drafting emotion, talking to my wife, playing with my kid, and all those things are happening at the same time. And it feels to me like someone to be successful in the world that you're in has to be able to almost block everything out except for whatever the objective is and just focus on the objective. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I think is that so. that something you taught yourself or is that something you just had naturally? I think, uh, number one, I think uh, the Army in general and Army Special Forces in particular has some very good professional uh, development um structures that are in place right now, professional, professional military education, and more so for Army Special Forces and, and, and Joint Special Operations Forces. So I know that they spend a lot of time studying that kind of stuff and, uh, and, and trying to teach it, trying to pass so it Sharpen on. your sword, yeah, as it were. Yeah, so I think it's a combination of the two. Okay. So if I'm, I'm doing my math, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but 86, that's Reagan. Yeah. And you were in for 30 years. Yep. So does that put you through Bush or Obama? Obama, yep. Okay, so you had you had a, a breadth of experience with different policies, yeah. different leaders, that sort of thing. Um, again, I, I'm so when when I do depositions in in the the legal arena, sometimes we'll do what's called a standing objection, which means I'm not going to object every time you ask a question I don't like. I'm just going to make a standing <laughs> objection now. So instead of a standing objection, I'm going to make a standing apology. If I ask anything <laughs> that comes off is offensive or is on a subject matter that's inappropriate, please just tell me. It's not my intention to be offensive or, or, or step in a in a pile that I shouldn't be stepping Absolutely. in. Absolutely. But I'm just kind of an idiot. So I appreciate it. <laughs> so my standing apology is. So uh, one of the things that uh, has become more apparent to me uh, over my adult life is uh, how, you know, you mentioned earlier about firearms, how divisive that's become. Uh, we've also seen it with the military. We've also seen it with the police. And I almost think it's being done to the voting public to kind of create sides rather than to let them have a nuanced, well thought out conversation on things, because one of one of the things that I uh, attributes that I think I do have that helps me is I understand that the world isn't black and white. There's a lot of gray area. So uh, I was listening to a podcast recently with John Stewart. Uh, you might know that name. Uh, he was on Joe Rogan, yep. and uh, he was talking about the disconnect in how much active military are championed versus uh, veterans. You know, it, it, you know, the it's posited that the the right can be very pro military, pro foreign policy, pro these sorts of things, but then when someone's out of the military, how they're handled as a veteran, they kind of fall off the radar. Is this something that you have an opinion you we, when we were talking you said you have strong opinions, so I'm hoping you brought some <laughs> with you. I'm interested to know your your view on this. It, it, you know, I know that was kind of a big question, but do you see that there's kind of a disparity in treatment between people when they're in and when they're out? You, you know, I haven't seen that again. I can just speak for myself and uh, my, uh, what is it, four years now since uh, since I've been 
retired. But, you know, in terms of uh, how people treat uh, active duty versus retirees, I haven't seen a whole lot of difference. I mean, I appreciate I appreciate the fact that, uh, you know, folks acknowledge it and, uh, you know, do a lot to uh, to try to say thanks and things like that. I haven't noticed a difference between when I was in, uh, you know, when I was in uniform and uh, and now that I've been retired. My question more specifically, though, is not how the public is treating you, but how the military is treating you. Um, you know, I've heard of, you know, people with health issues that they are not not able to get sufficient coverage for or treatment for. Is that something that you've seen or? It's nothing that I've experienced. Um, and I'm trying to think I don't have any, uh, you know, close friends that have been through some real problems um, that haven't been able to get help. Um uh, again, most of my friends, uh, most of my uh, co-workers are in the special operations community as well. And I think uh, uh, here at here at McDill, the uh, um, the uh, they they have uh, infrastructure in place specifically for special operations and special operations uh, veterans that do a superb job of of doing just what you say, taking care of not just service members but uh, retirees and their families as well. Um, I, you know, and I I think it's pretty impressive, um, and I, I I think it's working well as far as that goes. Now, speaking for the for the general military, for the for the, for the larger military, you, you know, I don't know. I, I'm sure that it's a little bit different. Um, I, they, they don't have the resources that uh, that the special operations community does to uh, to donate to it. Um, but I have, I guess, less experience with that. Well, when you think of all the people that are in the military versus all the people who are former military, yeah. that's such a large group to be able to manage in any kind of meaningful way. So by no means do I think there's an easy answer to it, but it's just something that I've been interested in. Um, as far as your time in the military through those different uh, administrations that we talked about, you know, again, uh, oftentimes it's kind of uh, positioned as though the right is much more pro-military than the left. Did you in your and if you can speak on it, if not standing apology, um, the, your experiences under the different administrations, was there any kind of a trend that you saw there? Was there any kind of a experience that kind of showed you that that to be true or maybe not true or maybe not exactly true? I think the biggest uh, example of that that I saw was when I first came in. Um, I can remember, uh, again, going way back in the day, my time as a cadet um, in between. Uh, well, 86, you're right around like Ollie North. Aren't yeah, you? I yeah. Mean, just right it's around that time. Exciting times yeah. as far as that all goes. Um, but uh, let's see, it was between my freshman and junior year, got a chance to do something they called cadet troop leader training, where they take all us young cadets out and send us out to um, an active duty regular army platoon somewhere to pretend to be a platoon leader for a month to give us that exposure. Well, I ended up going to uh, to Korea um, and I worked with a tank platoon for a month. Fascinating experience, but it was a real eye opener because the conditions there in Korea were so bad in terms of you could just see there hadn't been a whole lot of money applied to it in terms of infrastructure, equipment and things like that. And they were just starting to get the infusion of, of dollars from the Reagan administration. It was making a huge difference. Um, so I think that was the first example of it that I so saw. So the switch over from Reagan, well, from after Car Reagan, it was Bush yeah. Sr. Yep. And then after Bush Sr. was Clinton. So they, you were starting to get the infusions as you came in. Yeah. Is that leading up to they stopped at some point? No, I, I, okay. I don't think they ever did. And I, you know, I don't think in my career I saw huge differences to that extent that I did from, from, from that initial one. Okay. I, did you ever get an opportunity to stand on the wall and look across while you were there? I've, I've heard stories from other uh, friends of mine who are over there and they say they'd cover up their name tags. Cause like they could read your yeah. name on your vest and like they would be communicating with you back and forth. It's uh, it's pretty fascinating. I mean, it's a serious head game. It's a, it, it, it's kind of comical, you know, if it wasn't so serious, it would be, but, but yeah, it's, it's pretty trippy to experience that. That's, that's, that's insane. And, and uh, I mean, still to this day, it's, it, you know, uh, it was it was just this year when they thought that he might have passed away, but yeah. I guess he's still with us. Yeah, it's <laughs> kind of interesting. It's how fascinating. The lack of insider knowledge, well, at least for the general public, I don't know what the military knows about, but you know about what's going on over there. Um, so your time in the military, gosh, we're looking at both Gulf Wars, Afghanistan, and then any number of other deals in Africa or where else that we've faced. Um, 
were you on the ground in some of those areas to the extent you can talk about? I, I was, yeah. I've been, uh, I, I spent most of my time in the, uh, in the Middle East and, uh, in Southwest Asia, um, some time in, uh, Eastern Africa, Northern Africa. Um, and I think, um, you, you know, that kind of gets back into the, the, the folks that are successful in, uh, in special forces, particularly. Um, and, and that is again, going back to my early days, we were focused, um, you know, on the big threat, fight, fighting the big war, you know, against at the time, the Soviet Union. And I can remember being in a, uh, doing a computer, uh, simulation, a command post exercise where we were fighting, you know, a, a, an army that was supposed to be the Russians. And, uh, um, one of the simulations that the, and this is the day where, you know, it had to be computer controllers. Everybody didn't have their own PC. Sure. Um, threw a, a little twist into the gameplay. And that was, you know, on the battlefield, they injected this, this mass of displaced civilians that were just running around the battlefield. And I can remember the folks in our headquarters just going crazy. Well, what do we do about all these civilians? You know, get, get the, get, get somebody to control them. But the point was that, you know, we as a military at the time weren't ready to handily accept the fact that we're always going to have, we're always going to have to deal with population. We're always going to have to deal with civilians in the, on the battlefield one way or another. Um, smash cut forward to the 2008, you know, 2009 timeframe when we've been involved in Iraq fighting an insurgency for those years. You know, we, we, we finally acknowledged in terms of our doctrine that there is something out there in terms of dealing with populations when we're fighting. In other words, we just can't wish them away. We have to deal with them one way or another. Well, almost, and and again, you can correct me if I'm wrong. In this setting, it, it's almost at its most severe as far as a consideration because you have in in one nation at least three pretty distinct sects. You know, it was the the Kurds and the you know all the. So you're dealing with people who are at odds, people who are vying for a spot that's now been, you know, created by you know our efforts. And so there's a, you're not just having to deal with one people, you're having exactly. to deal with three people and trying to figure out who wants what, who's on the up and up, you know, who, you know, it just, what a, what a head game that had to be, yeah. you know? And I think, you know, we as a military recognize that something like an, an insurgency, it's gone from being complicated, you know, when all we had to worry about was fighting the big one against the Soviets, we could template out very, you know, pretty accurately exactly what their formations were going to look like, what their defensive positions were going to look like. So, you know, it was complicated, but it wasn't necessarily complex. Compare that with what you described in Iraq, where everything is changing every day. Every time you do something, that changes the situation well, you're dealing with complexity there. Vietnam was kind of the first look into yeah, that where yeah. you have insurgency, you have, you don't know if it's a civilian or a, right. a fighter, um, you know, the guerrilla warfare on a much greater level than you've ever probably seen in Korea or World War II or any of these other things. And so kind of so much more of a head game, you know, yeah. not a direct fight. There was just a lot more considerations yeah. to it. And also not only that, um, you're now in the, you're now in the age of TV being there, cameras being on you, you, you being in the public eye, you know, so having to answer to the public of how you're doing and what you're doing and why you're doing adds a whole other wrinkle to it. Yep. Um, and you know, now, now we're seeing it with the police, uh, because the police now with, cell phones and GoPros and body cams and dash cams and secure. I mean, it's, it's next to impossible anymore to have any interaction with a civilian without being on video camera. And it's very hard to know everything that's going into whatever that exchanges, you know, I'm in a, I'm in an interesting position because I'm a, a former prosecutor. I'm currently a defense attorney. I personally, personally pretty liberal. I'm a big supporter of the black lives matter and all these other things, but I also have tons of friends who are in the military, tons of friends who are in the police department and they're great people out there doing an extremely difficult job. It's very hard to do. Yeah. And so again, things not being black and white, it's that gray area. And so it's, it, 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 I don't love and, 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 and I'm probably at fault for it sometimes too, but how politicized some of these things become because, you know, there's outliers of these behaviors, good or bad, but generally in the middle, it's people trying to do the right thing. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, I don't know that I had a question there, but anyway. Uh, so with, with your time over in the Middle East, um, one of the things that if you have an opinion on, you know, there was a lot of, 
criticism over Bush going in and then a lot of criticism over Obama trying to get out. You know, we shouldn't have been there. But once we were there, we should have gotten out because all we did is basically stirred the hornet's nest, then left and didn't have anything in place to kind of, you know, achieve any kind of continued resolution to what the problem was. And there was a movie I saw and I forget which general it was. You probably know what it was. It was called War Machine with Brad Pitt. Yeah. See that? yeah, yeah. And it was showing how the, the, the turnover of people in charge there was creating such a big problem because there was no continuity of effort, no continuity of strategy, no continuity of yeah. understanding that you're like hitting the reset button every six to eight months. Is that something that you saw there or have any opinions on? Yeah. I, and I think that's, uh, uh, I, I think that's a common um you know I, frankly i think a lot of people have, have identified that as a, as an issue there's a uh, and I, I can't remember where i've seen it but a, a couple different places i guess where folks have described the war in afghanistan in particular you know not as a at this point in what 19 year war but 19 one year wars for exactly you know what you described the the the, the change in, in in people um I, I think we're doing better at that now in terms of the folks at the very top leaving them there um it, it, for a longer period of time because you know just as you say these these things take time. Um, I, I guess that's mitigated to a certain extent, um, for, for for better or worse, the fact that you know we've got repeat offenders going back there, folks that have, you know, when I was in the army, um, it, 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 we grew up wondering if we were ever going to go to the big game, ever actually going to go to war, and it wasn't until you know uh, um, I, I missed out on the, the the first Gulf War. I was at the uh, uh, infantry officer basic cor- or advanced course rather, um, and you know we thought we, we thought literally we'd missed the big war, you know, for for our generation. Well, you didn't. We, we, yeah, we didn't. <laughs> And uh, compare that with the folks that are growing up now. I mean, for crying out loud, there's folks coming into military that were born after the after 9-11. So they've had to deal with this, you know, literally their whole lives, let, let alone their whole military career. So, yeah, uh, it's it's interesting. So you brought up 9-11. I was in law school when 9-11 happened. I remember watching it on the television set and being scared to death, not knowing what it meant or having any idea what it meant. And, uh, you know, kind of watched how how the dominoes have fallen since then. Um, One of the things that, you know, became a talking point uh, early on, it's kind of seems like ancient history now is why we're there. You know, there's a lot of Dick Cheney and Halliburton and a a cash grab on oil. Then there was, you know, we've got this dictator who's killing his own people and gassing his own people. We need to protect them. Um, Any views that you could talk on about why we're there? And if not, it's okay. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think this is probably going to sound naive on my part, but I think, and, and frankly, just like Vietnam, at least initially, I think we were there for the noblest of purposes. Sure. I think we were there for the right reasons. Um, you know, things absolutely in, in both cases would have been different had we had perfect information right from the beginning, um, but we didn't. Um, but I think, uh, again, I don't think you know, we were there with any kind of nefarious or bad intent or greedy intent. I, I think we were honestly there trying to do the right thing. Being over there, uh, did there any specific memories that stand out, things that surprised you? You know, I've talked to people and they've talked talk to me about the smell of burning tires in the <laughs> desert or, you know, these mansions or, you know, I've talked to friends who are in the private sector and, and they they basically just watch Hussein's sons drive around in cars all day long. And, you know, was there anything that kind of when you talk about that time period sticks out in your mind? Um, boy, I uh, probably everything. Yeah, so much. yeah. I, I don't, it's uh, n- nothing in particular. I okay. guess. Yeah. So uh, another c- component besides just the physicality and the mental strength that it takes to do it is I have to imagine that just being scared shitless, you know, f- learning how to push through that is a, is a, a skill set that maybe either is acquired or you're blessed with or whatever else. But I mean, you're putting yourself in these, you know, insane situations that, you know, no one would rationally yeah. do, but for the job that you've, you've, you've enrolled, you know, decided that you're going to do, uh, how, how is that? Like, is it, you know, is it like an adrenaline thing? Like you're not even thinking of it when you're there or you are thinking of it or 
what was your experience in that regard? I think uh, a couple of different things. Um, I think in terms of, again, special forces in particular and special operations forces, um, we have a bit of an advantage in that we're able to, as I say, we, we were <laughs> back when I was, when I was there, um, able to assess and select folks. So in other words, they were able to look for folks that had the right attributes, um, to make them successful or, or, you know, had the tendency to make them more successful at, at those things. Um, attributes like, um, like perseverance, attributes like the ability to deal with complexity, um, you know, like we talked about before, um, and, and you know, an attribute is to be able to learn things. And then everything that wasn't one of those attributes, I think uh, they're able to uh, to provide you the training and or the education uh, to get you there. So that's part of it. Um, and, and frankly, I think that's why a lot of folks stay in special forces and special operations forces, because of the fact, you know, you know that you're working with folks that have those attributes attributes have been through that same assessment and selection process that you have. So, you, you know, you, you kind of know, you know, what More you're of a dealing team with. Yeah. You feel taken care of. And then I think on top of that, as part of that training, part of it um, is uh, is stress inoculation, you know, where they, they they do everything that they can to make things as stressful and as difficult for you beforehand so that you get a chance to work out all that kind of stuff, you know, either uh, successfully or unsuccessfully as you're going through the stress inoculation. Yeah, you don't want to learn it on the field. Yeah, or, yeah. exactly. So you, so you can feel what, it like, what it's like, you know, when, you're, when your butthole puckers up and yeah. things like that and uh, in, in a less uh, costly environment. Now, is it still that way? Because I I've, I've heard, you know, but maybe it's I'm wrong that they've had to soften their approach more over time than they did maybe when you were in. Is that something uh, that you're? I, I don't believe it. I, okay. I mean, everybody hears that and it's very easy to say, yeah, back in the day, back when I went through, you know, the, the class I went through was the last hard class. Yeah. It's easy to, to say that. But um, I had a chance in my career to go back and see, um, you know, how they had changed the, the, the training pipeline up to that time. And of course, we were hearing the same things. But from what I saw, it was every bit as challenging as when I went through, if not more so. And, and frankly, in a whole lot of ways, a whole lot more so. Right. And I think the same as today. I trust, you know, you know, I know the folks that are there in the leadership positions now that are responsible for, for training the young special operators. I, I trust them. Um, so I'm, I'm absolutely confident that, the, like I say, it's at least as difficult as when I went through, if not more so. Right. Um, so a couple other things I, I want to talk, we touched on mindset. I want to talk to you a little bit about guns, if, if I could. Uh, I was brought up in a household uh, with no firearms in it. My household has no firearms in it. Uh, I, I say this half jokingly and half uh, seriously. My main fear with owning a firearm is that I'd use it on myself. You know, I'm a Irish Catholic, yeah, you yeah. know, family of alcoholics. I can get pretty uh, dark now and again, and I just don't want it having have it right there for me. Yeah. But, um, you know, uh, I've got some good friends who are very into it, very responsible with it. They do all the training and, you know, their their feeling is, is if I'm responsible and I'm doing the appropriate training, I should uh, my buddy Chris Guarino, who's on the show, should, is if, if I should be able to own a tank if I want to buy one legally. You know, that's what he says. But one of the things that I've always worried about is oftentimes when you hear of these shootings, the people who have them aren't these people who are responsible, yeah. who are educated. And the question is, well, how are they getting them? Are they stealing them from vehicles? Are they getting them from their parents who weren't locking them up? And so, you know, there's this one perfect world that everybody has idealistically of no one that's not a police officer or military has guns. And then there's this other idealistic world where, well, all the people who are responsible have them, but just they have them. And again, it's that kind of middle ground. So, you know, what's, what's your take on that? I, I think, uh, I, I think there's some middle ground there. I mean, obviously I'm a supporter of, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the right to keep and bear arms. I, I think it's significant. I think it's significant to, uh, to our government and our, you know, our, our American way of life. Once again, without being, uh, sounding too corny, corny. Um, I, I think it's, I think it's, it is proper. But I think, you know, like you said, um, I think the problem is or a problem is education. I think, uh, you know, when we talk about violence, when we talk about criminal violence and criminal use of, uh, of firearms, I, I don't think necessarily the problem is the firearm itself, the tool itself. I think there's a whole lot of other contributing factors, um, you know, and this is stuff that gets hashed over in the, in the news all the time. So I'm not saying anything new, but. Um, no, but I think people would yeah. be interested to hear your opinion on it because, you know, I kind of intentionally and subconsciously, you know, we hear these 
these phrases like groupthink or echo chamber where yeah. I just surround myself with friends who all say the same thing. So I'm interested to hear, you know, other other views on it by people who are actually in a position to have, yeah. you know, well-reasoned views on it. So, you know, I, you know, one of the things we always talk about is, is assault rifles, but, you know, you start to dial in, well, what is an assault rifle? Is an AR-15 an assault rifle? What's an assault rifle? you know, high capacity magazines, bump stocks, all these different things. And, you know, I appreciate that if someone wants to kill you, they can do it with a spoon or a paperweight or whatever. Uh, but again, just like my concern with me possessing a firearms, it makes it a whole lot easier to do it successfully. And then also do a, a volume of people if your, your aggression is outward projected. So yeah. that's, that's my concern generally. And then being in the legal field, you know, we've talked about people with domestic violence records or these other indicators that might show that they're not uh, probably the, the, the best candidate to own a firearm. You know, I, I feel like, you know, one side saying you're not going to take our firearms. And it was like, well, we don't want to take your firearms. We just want kind of a, a middle of the road path that we can kind of talk about this. But it's you, you got to be on one side or the other. Yeah, I think, you know, again, I'll, I'll probably get violently assaulted when I leave here by, by, by some of my friends. But I, I think the middle of the road is is, is really the the, uh, the the proper perspective for this. I mean, because, you know, as we talked about owning and using a firearm, there's a great responsibility that goes along with it. And some folks, you know, are able to handle responsibilities, whether it be owning guns or driving cars or whatever. So I think, you know, there's always going to be a gap with folks that don't use them responsibly, again, whether it's guns whether it's cars, whether it's alcohol, whatever it is. Right. Um, so I think, you know, we need to do something to police up the folks who have demonstrated that they can't handle that responsibility. So so this gets me to kind of another topic uh, with some overlap there. But, uh, you know, in the past year with um, George Floyd, uh, his death, Breonna Taylor's death, um, there's been a lot of uh, discussion about defunding the police, the the quote unquote militarization of the police. And this, again, is a conversation where it seems very difficult for people to meet in the middle and say, you know, maybe maybe the police, their job isn't to solve every problem that people are having from a cat in a tree to someone needing to be Baker acted to, you know, someone taking hostages to a, a mass shooting that, you know, there's 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 a couple of logical problems there. Number one is they can't be equipped to do all of it well. And then also maybe the approach is kind of a military organization versus maybe more of a mental health organization or some of these other things. So I, I think the phrase defund the police is, is horrible PR. I don't think it should be called defund the police, uh, you know, maybe reorganize our approach on the police or maybe let's have a conversation about how we can do this better with the police. But on um, that becomes something that you either have to be on one side or the other. And then, you know, with the black lives matter, it's, then you get, well, all lives matter. And it's like, okay, well, I don't think the position is that all lives don't matter, but we are seeing, I think, a trend of people, you know, uh, being harmed uh, in a ratio that's disproportionate. And so what's going on there? Why is that happening? So is this something that you have an opinion on or thought about? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much I've thought about it, but I guess I've got an opinion for what it's worth. I mean, so yeah, if, I, I think in, 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 a, in a lot of ways, it, it, it goes down to respect. You know, I think uh, respect number, of law enforcement, uh, respect of law enforcement and respect by law enforcement. So, you know, number one, they've got um, police officers. I have a tremendous amount of respect for them. I always have. And I recognize that they've got an incredibly difficult job. I mean, it's something that I couldn't do that, that I. That I frankly wouldn't want to do. And I, I know a lot of folks, so, you know, are, are incapable of it and wouldn't want to do. Um, on the other hand, um, again, going back to the, the, you know, from a military perspective and some lessons we learned with respect to counterinsurgency in Afghanistan, for example, we learned how unsuccessful it is to do a night raid. In other words, to barge into somebody's compound, to rouse the family out, to, uh, you know, just smash and burn everything that was in there when we were looking for a certain individual or certain, uh, you know, pieces of equipment and, uh, and, and then picking everything up and going. Um, you know, we learned that that's not the way to, uh, to, to, to have a positive impact on a population that we're dealing with, that we learned that we go in there with a little bit more respect. You know, we, we, we call the people out, we let them know what we're doing. Um, and, and, and I think if we go into it with that mindset, it makes things a little bit easier. So in other words, not trying to antagonize people right from the get go. Well, it's interesting. Uh, I've never really thought of it in the way that you just put it, but in, in a lot of ways, it's as 
you know, especially in inner city neighborhoods or, or maybe where, you know, the, the color of the people that you're dealing with or the ethnicity or culture of a people you're dealing with may not reflect the force that's policing that area, much in the same way being in Afghanistan or Saudi Arabia. You've really got to figure out how to have a relationship there. Yeah, yeah. And like you said, you know, you, you, you see on T, you know, there's, there's the one way which you've kind of referenced, you kind of, you know, burn every, you know, well, it's funny because there's a quote from uh, General Sheridan in that post. It's like, uh, leave them with only their eyes to weep yeah, yeah. over losing the war. I was like, wow, that's a pretty <laughs> intense position to take. But then conversely, like, you know, making friends with the people there can help you have a longer term success. You know, you'd rather have a, a trust level there. You'd rather have a, like you said, a respect yeah, yeah. and not a, a fear there. It seems to have more of a longevity and being able to serve a longer term goal uh, than, you know, smashing the thing up and yeah. kind of mix, mixing it up with everybody. And if I can, you know, try to jump to try to tie this back to, you know, what we talked about special forces and special operators. I think once again, that's something that makes a, a special forces operator uh, successful is the understanding, the recognition, you know, that war at the end of the day is a human endeavor. I mean, you know, we, we're now in the 21st century. We're dealing with things like social media and AI and machine learning and things like that. But at the end of the day, war is always going to be a human endeavor, you know, and, and, and to win a war. It's been a while since we've, you know, no shit won a war, but it, it takes, you know, more than just schwacking all the bad guys and stacking bodies. It takes convincing that population, um, you know, that, that they have lost and that you have won. And maybe you can do that without firing a single shot, but maybe you can't. I mean, you know, going back to, to, uh, to counterinsurgency, uh, the, the Russians were able, or I'm sorry, the Russians, the Romans way back in the day were able to do counterinsurgency. And it wasn't by winning the hearts and minds, which is another trope that, you know, I'll, I'll get into in a minute, but it wasn't through winning hearts and minds. It was by crucifying all of Spartacus's, you know, underlings that they rebelled and, and hanging them on the side of the road, you know? Right. So yeah, you can defeat an insurgency that way, but is that the best way? Probably not. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a technique, but it's probably not the best technique. Sure. Another technique is to find another way to convince them, you know, that they have lost. We can look at uh, the difference between, uh, you know, World War II and, uh, and, and the first Iraq war. You know, a lot of folks will will argue that World War II was just a continuation of World War I. We had never convinced the Germans that they had lost the first war. Although we defeated them militarily, we didn't convince the population of that. So they were able to, you know, to resurge. And then we've got World War II. And compare that with what's happened post-World War II with Germany and Japan. There, the populations were absolutely convinced yep they had lost so uh, anyway i'm not sure where i was going with that but uh, again that's no, what we were we were uh, comparing uh police yeah, strategy yeah. neighborhoods to military strategy you know where, wherever uh, they've got boots on the ground but I, I i never really thought of it in those terms but it makes a lot of yeah. sense to me because you know you've got to think of the there's the the, the long play and the short play the short play is I got to arrest this guy or I got to stop this guy from whatever he's doing. Yeah, but the yeah. long play is we need to be able to have an open dialogue with these people. We don't, you know, we can get much further with respect than fear. And, you know, and, 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 and I don't know if how some of these things are happening. It's, it's getting us closer to, to that or further away from that. Uh, but I mean, in my lifetime, I haven't seen protests like what we're seeing yeah, now. Yeah. But again, you know, could that be the media? Could that be an election year? I mean, there's all, all sorts of things that go into it. So um, there's a couple other things I wanted to ask you about. Uh, so uh, another thing, and a standing, standing apology. So uh, when Trump took office, uh, his cabinet, uh, he he filled it with a lot of generals and former generals, and it was very favorable to the military in that regard. A lot of respect given him for that. Uh, and since that time, though, many of them have left and kind of after they've left the cabinet, kind of shaking their head and say, you know, I don't know what's going on there. I'm kind of worried about how things are going on. And I, the other thing I wanted to ask you about to the extent you can. Uh, discuss it is uh, the issue that came out recently about uh, the Russians uh, putting bounties on American soldiers' heads, you know, and, and how that was regarded or disregarded by the government. So any, any views about kind of how we're handling foreign policy now and what's going on with the generals and that sort of thing? 
Um, I uh, again, the uh, the views that I'm going to express are just just my opinion. You're just and here by yourself all. today. You're is not it, representative is it, is it of anybody. Crusty old retired guy. Sure. Um, but um, I think uh, you know when you read the president's national security strategy and the emphasis that it puts on working with uh, with partners and allies, I think is spot on. I think everybody will acknowledge that 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 that, that is significant. Explain to me what you just said there, because I'm not sure I understood it. Expl- working with partners and allies. Yeah. Okay. So and it implies. Again, this is a, the president's national security strategy that he signed in December of 2017. One of the points of that is that uh, you know this, there's a significant benefit to working with partners and allies through structures like uh, like NATO um, and you know uh, um, and, and bilateral partnerships and relationships as well. Um, unfortunately, it seems that uh, w- you know we, we're we're making our relationship with NATO in particular a whole lot more contentious than it needs to be. I, I don't think they're necessarily, you know, that institution is what we want to be picking apart. I think we want to be, you know, living up to the words that are in the national security strategy and, uh, and, and, and supporting those institutions um, to, uh, you know, to, to benefit us as well as everybody else uh, in the long run. Why do you think that's happening? Um, picking apart NATO? Uh, I think... Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I think there's folks that feel, you know, certain countries, certain players aren't paying their fair share of it. Right. Um, I, I don't know about that. I can't speak to that. But, I, you know, my again, my personal opinion is I think we'd be a whole lot worse off without a NATO or without us being, you know, leading NATO than uh, than we would otherwise. Now, one of the things you uh, talked about earlier in the show was how, uh, you know, you coming in the military, the training and kind of the thinking uh, was very uh, demarcated by the experience with Russia. And it seems like today our relationship with Russia is much different from it was when you went in the military in, in Asia. Uh, do you have any views on that or opinions on that? Boy, in a lot of ways, it's almost like back to the future. Yeah. It's, you know, we thought, uh, you know, when was it? 1989, when the, when the uh, Berlin Wall came down, um, when uh, when the USSR fell in 1990, 91, we thought uh, we thought for a while there we could, you know, they, they were they were going to join the winning team, you know, be uh, be our allies, be our partners, be our friends, come on in for the big win. Um, and then smash cut forward 10 years after that, after we've experienced Putin in power for a while. And we see that's not necessarily the case. Things are, you know, as contentious uh, now, as if not more so during the Soviet era. So I, I think it's uh, it, it's very sporty, uh, you know, if you will, on, uh, on on managing that relationship right now. I think it's something that we we need to be concerned about. Well, sure, and and I don't disagree, but there's you know it, it seems like a head scratcher in some ways that seem like obvious points of contention or talking points that are kind of either overlooked or. You know, obviously the left has argued there's now this kind of kinship or friendship with Trump and, and Putin. And I don't know if, if you agree that that's happening or that's much ado about nothing or. You know, I, I don't know. I don't I don't know what to make of it, because, yeah. uh, again, you know, we see, you know, what the uh, what the 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 policies are we're trying to do to uh, to compete with both Russia and China. And yet we see the kind of personal relationships that uh, that uh, the, the president's, uh, you know, I don't know if he's formed or at least, you know, uh, presents the the perception of forming with with both of those leaders. And there's kind of a disconnect right there. Right. Um, and, and I guess, yeah, I, I kind of scratch my head about that. I'm not, yeah. I'm not sure. Well, it's so hard today. And I've had this conversation with other people is it seems until recently you could talk about an objective truth. You yeah. could talk about empirical facts. Yeah. This we know this to be true. We can argue about what we think about that, but we know this to be true. And literally anymore, we can't even find a common ground on. It's, it's you know, scary. Right. And, and I don't know if you can unring that bell. I just, I feel like, you know, as a kid, you go to the beach and at first you, you go knee deep in the water and it's like, uh, okay. And then you go the next day and okay, you go waist deep. Before you know it, you're swimming out past the markers without a, a thought in the world. In a lot of ways, I kind of see the, the political arena that way yeah. now. I feel like we've swam way out past the markers and I don't know how we ever bring that back yeah. in. Like, you know, we, we've got this playbook now for what's acceptable or if maybe not acceptable what you can get away with. And I, I just don't know that once you know that, that you have that available and I'm saying on either side yeah. that you can reel that back in. Uh, and so it scares me, you know, there's all this talk about delaying the election and what's going to happen with the post office and mail-in ballots and all these other things. And uh, it's just, 
we're going to have to rethink how we do this, I think, to somehow kind of course correct. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think it, it's so unfortunate, but I think we've lost the ability to compromise. And I think so much of our system of government depends upon that compromise. I mean, I think it, it's very unfortunate. I mean, some big heroes of mine are uh, George uh, George Bush Sr. Um, and, uh, and, and John McCain. And I mean, both of those individuals, I think, number one, I think their uh, integrity was pretty spot on, which I think is is more than significant. I think it's absolutely critical for, for a leader of any capacity. Um, but I think those two individuals demonstrated their ability to look past partisan issues and to compromise when it was necessary. And they were able to, you know, they were, they were strong enough to, you know, if you will, to acknowledge that compromise doesn't signal weakness. You know, it, it signals the the, the the way to get things done. Now, I know McCain is, uh, was a vet. George Bush, I know, ran the CIA. Was he former military? He was absolutely. Okay. He was, uh, yeah. So I, I wonder, does that, do you think, play a, a role in it? You know, long, you know, how many presidents are we now since one served in the military? we got Trump who didn't. We have Obama who didn't. We have uh Bush Senior did. Yeah, I'm mean, uh, sorry. Bush Junior did. Right? Wasn't he in the Air Force? Or he was uh, like in the National, well, the National Guard. National Guard. Yeah. Okay. And then Clinton didn't. And so I'm wondering if there's some something there. You know. <laughs> Again, I'm probably a little bit biased on this, but I would like to think so. I think a lot of the values that uh, number one attract folks to the military, and number two that the military instills in folks are, you know, I would like to think of what got, you know, uh, George Bush Sr. and John McCain to where they are. I, I can't help but think that helped formulate, you know, some of their thinking. It's funny because uh, before my wife and I had children, I, I, other people in our family would always, you know, bemoan how difficult it was or how much lack of sleep or all this other stuff. And they, and we would get frustrated because we said, you know, we don't have children, but we're intellectual people. We can understand you know, what, what that life would be, even if we haven't experienced it. But now as a father of two children, I had no fucking clue what I was talking yeah, about yeah. before I had kids. So probably a horrible analogy, but to have someone who hasn't served in the military, to have someone who hasn't been boots on the ground, to have someone who hasn't done those things, it's, it's hard to make, I'm not saying it can't be done, but you're, you're you're at a deficit there, you know. I, I would imagine and this happens in family law a lot too, because a lot of times we get judges. You know, uh, I think tomorrow is the election here locally, yep, yep. and I've had a bunch of judges on the show, and you know, a good number of them never did family law. And usually, the place that they put these judges first is in family law because there's no juries there, and they that's kind of how they they groom them. But but I've had any number of trials or motions or whatever in front of a family law judge, and I'm just like, I, I don't even. I don't even know where to start. Like, I, I'm not, I can't even start with the facts of what we're talking about. I have to go back and teach the law to you before I can even make the argument yeah, to yeah. you. So with, you know, a veteran running for an office versus someone who isn't, I have to imagine that plays a big part in it. Again, I think it's uh, there's personalities involved as well. It, it would certainly depend on the individual veteran, but sure. you know, yeah, I think there's but something. To make there. it to the level that the veterans, like yeah. uh, who's it, Wes um, ran a couple elections ago. Wes, uh, he was running as an independent. I think he ran against Obama. And, oh, Wes Clark, Wesley, Wesley Clark. Clark. I'm getting old. My brain's not working anymore. But I mean, for you to be former military in the spot to be running for an office. You have to have gotten past the, you know, yeah, I lucked yeah. out. I lucked out getting where I am. Like yeah. I've established I should be where I am. So I don't know that there's another testing ground out there in politics like that. Yeah, that, I, I mean that's a great point. It's, yeah, you know, kind of sink or swim. So uh, you brought this amazingly esoteric notes that you had. Now you turn them over. Was there anything on the notes that I didn't talk about or ask you about? No, I think we covered them all. I just, really? My little, uh, my little crutch here. Yeah. Oh, that looks amazing. I, I was hoping you were going to teach me military strategy yeah. or something. No, anything you want to know. Now, how, do, how do you know Jalal? Do you train over at Tampa Movie Time? I, I do. I've been training there for about three and a half years. Yeah. Did you train anywhere else before going there? I, I did not. I needed a, uh, I guess, a retirement hobby. And, uh, and I, uh, I, I, I stumbled onto them. And man, I'll tell you what, what a great, what a great facility. What a great team they got down there. Do you find yourself teep kicking recliners and, and shin kicking your refrigerator door shut? And my, my <laughs> wife will tell you she hated me when I was training jujitsu and Muay Thai because yeah. I was always, I mean, 
respectfully and softly, but I was always, you know, a rear naked choke here. And oh, like, oh yeah. Just yeah. Like, M- much to my wife's alone. chagrin. That's right. And I've, I've converted the, uh, the garage into a pain cave where I've got my bag and everything hanging. So, uh, so absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I started there around 2009 and it was, uh, Ray was still there and Ray and David and Jalal. And it was just, it becomes a religion. Like it's all you yeah. want to think oh, about. Yeah. It's all you want to do. You watch YouTube videos, <laughs> yeah. you buy up all the gear yeah. and it's just, you know, constantly on your mind. And it's, it's amazing because you form quite a, a family of yep. people there. I mean, they become your friends and yeah. you talk about and do everything. And they were on lemon over, uh, near the, the armory, right. uh, when I, when I was there, then they moved somewhere else. And now they're the place on Franklin, but what a great gym. And I, oh, yeah. And if, uh, have you been there since, uh, since the COVID thing? Cause they've, I have they've done some great upgrades in there since then. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. It's really nice. So I won't name names, but I've probably, divorced every coach in the last six <laughs> years that's gotten divorced there. So I, I, I'm told I have free uh, training for life. Awesome. There, but it, also with my jujitsu friends, but I, I just, I've, you know, it's pizzas, tacos and little kids. That's yeah, kinda, yeah. Or my days ago. Well, it's, so you brought up COVID ended up kind of circling back to something, but one of the things that I had often thought about that might be a way to kind of bring the divisiveness, bring us together across the aisle is I almost thought the only way that that could happen is if there was such a dastardly world event, kind of like a nine, 9-11. If you remember 9-11, yeah, like, oh yeah. everybody loved Bush after 9-11. He, you know, he was on TV, he was on the rubble and, you know, all the stuff. And like, you know, everybody loved Julian. I mean, everybody was there. Was, there wasn't that acrimony and that lasted for a little bit. Yeah. And then we kind of went back to where we're at, but I was almost wondering for a while there, if COVID would be the thing that did it and boy, did it not do it? It sent us an opposite. Quite the opposite. Yeah. But have you ever thought about that? Like there would almost have to be like a seismic event for us to kind of put aside differences to, to bring us back together. Yeah. And I think, uh, Boy, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that, that COVID and this whole crisis didn't do that. Cause I think I'm like you, I was kind of expecting or anticipating that maybe we'd have one of those, you know, post 9-11 moments. But, uh, but as you said, you know, it never, never materialized. And in fact, just, uh, just frankly divided us even more. So yeah, I don't know. Do you think, uh, you know, it's funny cause before Afghanistan, uh, and, 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 you know, the Gulf War, I, I had remembered there being kind of talk is there, we weren't going to have that type of warfare anymore. We weren't going to have soldiers on the ground. We weren't going to have, it was, you know, going to be drones or it was going to be people at a computer wherever. I mean, do you, do you think the face of warfare is changing or do you think there's always going to be oh, yeah. room for both those things? Oh yeah. It's changing. I mean, y- you know, we can look around and see examples right now. If I, I, I mean, if, for crying out loud, it's not changing. It has changed. When you look at uh, what the Russians are doing in Eastern Europe, you know, with the whole uh, little green men thing. And uh, what is that? I don't even know what you're referring uh, to. The, the, the Russians, um, I, I, you know, I, I don't have, I wish I had better notes on that right now to talk about, but the way they're, uh, fighting, um, uh, some of the, uh, 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 yeah, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the Baltic states okay, there, yeah. what they're doing in Ukraine, for example, um, you know, they're, 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 they're fighting without you know, the, the little green men specifically refers to the fact that there are allegations that there are Russian special operations folks that are in there fighting, representing themselves as something else. Folks that have just, you know, kind of appeared, nobody knows where that are, that are doing the fighting. And clearly they're proxies on the part of the Russians, but they're waging that, you know, they're waging. Well, it's interesting. So it's kind of, a, it mirrors in a way which you're seeing with some of these riots and protests yeah, there's absolutely. a lot of allegations of these are actually white supremacist guys dressing up as Antifa yeah. and doing whatever so kind of stirring up the pot you know and, and creating this event where yeah. there, there might and I'm not saying that that's true or not I, I, I don't know but I, it, it reminds me of that there, there's a couple great books out there that talk about this concept the, the one is the uh, the new face of war by a guy named Sean P. McFate talks about that how things have changed um, there's one by uh, uh, Peter, Peter W. Singer is his his name uh, that talks about uh, what he calls a near war, um, where he talks about, and again, specifically what's going on with Russia and their use of social media um, to where, you know, they're doing all those things without ever having to fire a shot. They're influencing their, you know, they're getting in that population's right. mind and convincing them that they have won or lost using social media. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, number one, it's scary, but number two, it's fascinating. For sure. For sure. Um, 
That brought up another another point I wanted to ask. Oh, so uh, again, uh, I, I I I quite enjoyed the Obama administration. I was a fan. I I, I felt uh, I felt like he represented my values and morals. But I've had uh, colleagues, and, and you know, the, the conversation at some point always talks about what happened with him and drones. Um, and I, I, to this day, much like my knowledge of General Sheridan, still don't have much idea at all what they're talking about. I have some idea what they're talking about. But one of the things that I've, I've seen and, and is, you know, you have you're faced with these hard decisions uh, in a role of leadership, especially in the military or in government, where it's not a matter of no one dying and the person you want dying it's acceptable loss it's acceptable collateral damage and you know I, I i suspect that there's a lot of things that we have to do as a nation that the people knowing about you know probably wouldn't play out the way that they, they wanted it to so um is, i don't even know that that's a, i know that that's not a well-formed question but is there some component of what this nation has to do and what the people are aware of, there's kind of a discordance there or, or a disconnect. I, I, I think I think there has to be. I mean, I think part of the government's responsibility is, you know, to, to protect the people. And I think it's it's the nature of the beast that, um, you know, we. Uh, uh, you know, there, there, uh, straight up, there has to be secrets. I mean, uh, l- look at Snowden. So many people think of him as an absolute hero for exposing, you know, for shining a light. Sure. I think just the opposite. I think he's a traitor. I, I think I am absolutely disgusted when I think about the information that he gave to our enemies and adversaries that literally cost people's lives. I see the difference in the requirement to protect those, you know, those secrets. And I'm not saying all of them, but, but I mean, just, uh, it, you know, I recognize, I know I had to sign a statement of non-disclosure that says sure. I'm not going to give up any secrets. Right. And it just, it, you know, it, it disgusts me. And to a certain extent, it breaks my heart when I see people like that, that have, that I, again, I know has caused lives um, and they're considered heroes. So I think, um, again, maybe I'm naive, probably I'm naive, but I think there's certain things that the government has to do that um, are, are done for the right purposes that everybody in, you know, in the population doesn't need to know about. And and it seems so difficult now, you know, with technology advancing at an ever-increasing rate and social media and information becoming so much more re- readily available, how much Harder and harder it's going to be for the government and military and all these things to be able to conduct business without it being, you know, right there on the front yeah, page yeah. of the newspaper. And so I don't know if that's just an unavoidable reality and, and how that manifests. Does it change the behavior of government and military or does it change the threshold of the public to accept, you know, what kind of has to be done or might be a necessary evil? It seems like. There's room for movement on both sides yeah. of that consideration. Yeah. So anyway, well, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming by. It was an education for me. I respect you. I respect uh, what you did for this nation, what you continue to do. I know you're uh, a busy person and you were brave enough and, and kind enough to come here and to speak to me on these topics, which I can imagine could put you in Dutch with some of your friends for not sharing their opinions. So, Well, I appreciate it. I had a great time. I really did. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. 